Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, the 29th Psalm, which is a Psalm of David. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the giver of all good gifts, and we bless you for the gift of your word in general, in this psalm in particular, and we pray that you would now open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see wonderful things in your word and in your world, that we might be motivated to worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are now in the middle of a three-part series over the summer on Psalm 29. Uh, We've already preached one sermon on the first couple of verses. Psalm 29 is a hymn. And in the book of Psalms, hymns usually come in three parts. There's usually an introduction that invites people to worship, and we looked at that in verses 1 and 2. And in short, in this psalm, directly it's not you that are invited to worship, it's the angels. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. In this psalm, we're calling upon angels, even as we've done uh, in some of our hymns and singing today already. We've invited the angels to worship God, and in particular to ascribe glory and power to God, when, he, when that glory and power appears. And that's our text for this morning, verses 3 through 9. Because the second part of a hymn usually introduces reasons as to why we should worship God, why we should accept the invitation, motivation for carrying out the call that comes. That's verses 3 through 9, which is our text this morning, looking at our motivation for worshiping God. And then the last section... Well, you have to come back in August to figure out what that one's all about. But the, uh, the, the, the call to worship in 1 to 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord power, glory when he appears, uh, when his splendor appears, at his splendid appearance in holiness. And we talked a little bit about that the last time I was here, but we want to focus our attention on what that means. What does it mean to... Worship the Lord when he appears in holy splendor. What's the psalmist talking about? Well, in verses 3 through 9, he fills in the blank for us. He tells us what he's talking about, uh, how, to, how to see God's power, God's glory. And I know this might sound a little bit mundane, but really what verses 3 through 9 describe are an electrical storm. 
That's really all it is. It's a description of an electrical storm. And so what we want to do is we just want to describe an electrical storm. Uh, But we have to keep in mind that ancient Israel is not like central Florida. Now, we know a lot about electrical storms, yes or yes. But our electrical storms are a little bit different than theirs in terms of their origin. And so the description is going to be a little bit different, but we're going to take a look at that. See, why we get in, in central Florida in particular, where I'm from... It's the same here, but not maybe quite as dramatic. Uh, The reason why we get these electrical storms in the summer is because you get this warm, moist air coming off of the Gulf, and you get this warm, moist air coming off of the Atlantic, and all of a sudden they meet right over at uh, Orlando, and when they meet and collide, they go up, and when they go up, the air cools, and you get all this discharge of electricity, and all this rain comes down, and I love electrical storms. I mean, the fireworks last night were great, but give me a good old electrical storm any day. I just love thunder and lightning, and part of the reason is because I've been studying this kind of thing in the book of Psalms for so many years. Now, any Californians here? We got one Californian there. What part of California? L.A., okay. Um, Now, anybody know anything about California? The geography? Because it's very much like Israel. So, we have a large body of water called the what? It's the Pacific. And when you come off of the Pacific, there's a a coastal strip, and then you go into a a, a dual set of mountain ranges called the coastal ranges. Anybody know what what, what you enter into after you cross those mountain ranges? Especially if you're a little bit north of L.A. You you go into the... No, it's not desert. We're, We're not there yet. Valley, you, you're, in the, you're in the Great Valley, the San Joaquin Sacramento Valley. Uh, so you come off of the ocean, you go up over the coastal ranges, you go down into the San Joaquin Sacramento Valley. If you've had rice this week, it probably came from there. And then you go up into the Sierra. Now after the Sierra, then what do we come to? Desert. Okay, I've just described for you California in a mini version. I've just described for you the land of Israel. Only instead of the Pacific, it's the Mediterranean. There's a small coastal strip. You go up into the mountains of Judea and Samaria. You go down into the Great Rift Valley, the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, lowest point on the Earth's surface. And then you go up into the mountains on the other side into Jordan. And on the other side of that, you have high desert plateau. So it's, and not only is the topography the same, but the climate is the same as well. A little bit more about that later. So what we want to do now, with that little bit of just kind of geography in our minds, uh, we want to take a look at verses 3 through 9 and just kind of unpack this storm. First of all, what's the purpose of the storm? What's the purpose of the storm? Uh, really, it's to do two things, and the first is to display God's glory. Go back to our text. Notice it says, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory. And we talked about glory being what one accomplishes, uh, one sense of dignity based on those accomplishments, and then the honor that the community gives to someone because of what they've accomplished. 
And so when, when we see what God accomplishes in this powerful storm, we're to ascribe that glory to him. And notice then in verse 2, it says, ascribe to the Lord glory. But when we get down to verse 3, it says that uh, the God of glory thunders. Do you see that connection? Ascribe to the Lord glory. When? When you experience that glory, when are you going to experience it? When the God of glory, there's the connection, when the God of glory thunders. Thunder is a manifestation of the glory of God. And the bigger the thunder, the greater the display of God's glory. But not only are we supposed to, uh, is the storm supposed to display God's glory... It's also to display his power. Uh, when we go back to the psalm, it, it says that we are not only we're to, to ascribe um, glory and strength to the Lord. And then what does it say uh, later on in our text? It says the voice of the Lord is powerful. Now, perhaps you caught as I was reading this text that repetition the voice, the voice, the voice, the voice. Well, the Hebrew word is kol. And kol is almost onomatopoetic, if that's a word. In other words, it's a word that kind of sounds like the thing to which it refers. Uh, you can just hear kol, 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 kol. As the word kol rolls through the text... The thunderstorm is rolling over the land of Israel. So all these references to the voice are really references to the thunderous voice of God. And it's, it's the thunderous voice which is powerful. Have you ever jumped at thunder? Sometimes when it's, uh, when it's so close... Now, they say, if you see the lightning and you hear the thunder at the same time, you're gone. Because that means it got you. There's usually a delay. Um, but sometimes that lightning has struck so closely, so quickly, and the, the thunder is so loud that it just, it startles you. That's the power of God. So, you see, what's the purpose of this description of the storm? But more than that, what is one of God's purposes in even creating electrical storms? It's to display his glory and to display his, starts with a P, and to display his power. So you see, the the question is, when you see a thunderstorm, what are you seeing? When you hear thunder, what are you hearing? We're going to come back to this, but the, the point of the text is that is the power and the glory of God. And so the purpose of the storm is to display God's glory and God's power. Now, in the second place, let's just go through verses 3 through 7, 3 through 8, and let's just watch the path of the storm. See, when the poet's describing a storm, but he doesn't live in Florida. So the description of this storm and the path of the storm is not one from Florida, it's one from Israel. Notice where the storm starts. We're not surprised. It starts in verse 3 over the Mediterranean. 
Notice that verse 3 says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. Well, if, if we lived in St. Louis and I said, let's go down to the river, would you have to say which one? No. What, what would I mean? I, I would mean the Mississippi. Um, if we were, I, I forget exactly where it goes, but up where I live, if we were just a little bit east, and I'd say, let's go to the river in, in Oviedo, it would mean the little econ. Um, they, when they said the waters, nobody had to tell them which one. They knew what the waters were, where storms came from, and it's what? It's the Mediterranean. Now, notice that it doesn't just say the voice of the Lord is over the waters. It says the Lord is over the mighty waters. That's the really, really big one because they did have the Sea of Galilee. They did have the Dead Sea, but those weren't the big ones. The mighty waters are the Mediterranean. So the poet is starting to describe this storm right where it would come from, and that would be out over the Mediterranean. Now, I... I didn't design the liturgy this morning. I didn't pick Psalm 32, but I did catch when we were reading Psalm 32, the reference to the mighty waters. It's the exact same phrase in Hebrew that we have here. See, because the mighty waters, this is poetry, and sometimes poets will, as, it, as with humor, they'll want to say two things simultaneously. So mighty waters not only represent and refer to the Mediterranean, But there's an ominous note in that phrase, mighty waters. The mighty waters, the sea, is a symbol in the ancient world in general, and in the Hebrew Bible in particular, for the chaos that threatens to come over land and destroy the well-ordered life that you and I want to experience. Uh, Think not of a placid lake Think of the Atlantic when there's a hurricane about 100 miles off the coast going north. Tumultuous, churning up. That, it's a, the sea is a, that symbol of chaos. Which is why the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, when he sees the new heavens and the new earth, says, I didn't see any. I didn't see any sea there. The sea's gone. The threat of chaos is gone. Everything is new. And these mighty waters have that that threat, that kind of ominous note about them, as in Psalm 32, when the mighty waters rise, they will not overtake you. There's that kind of negative connotation here. But, but notice, notice where the Lord is thundering. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. That's a position of superiority. That's a position of sovereignty. The mighty waters, the, it, everything like in our culture perhaps might think, might seem turbulent and topsy-turvy and you don't know what's coming next. But there's somebody who is thundering over the mighty waters. We at times feel like we are going down for the third time. We feel like we can't catch our breath. Uh, we feel like everything is out of control. And from our perception, from our vantage point, that's the way it is. But God is not from our vantage point. God is over those mighty waters. Never forget that. Next time you hear thunder, I want you to just say to yourself, God's in control. 
Thunder is God's speech. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The Apostle Paul tells us that God communicates with us through creation. Our theology speaks of general revelation. John Calvin talked about the book of the word and the book of the world. But do we hear, we, we sing that beautiful hymn, This is my father's world. In the rustling grass I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. But when's the last time you heard God talking to you through the grass? If you did, maybe somebody would think you were smoking it. I just spent two weeks in Colorado. No, I was very good. You see, the, the, God is in control. Yes, we, we feel insecure. We feel nervous. We think our world is being turned upside down. We think chaos is overwhelming the good or ordered world. But God is thundering above it. He's in control of it. So let that allay your fears. Now, the storm starts over the Mediterranean. But then it moves over the Lebanon range. Look at verses 5 and the beginning of 6. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Well, see, they knew where the cedars grew. But in case you don't, the poet tells you in the next part of the, the, the line, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Notice how Hebrew poetry works. L- lines typically are broken into two parts, and the second one gives a little bit more information. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Which ones? The cedars in Lebanon. Now, the Lebanon range corresponds in California to the coastal range. So you see the storm has come off the Mediterranean and it's gone over that coastal range where it is so powerful. See, the voice of the Lord is powerful. It's so glorious. The voice of the Lord is majestic that it's breaking the cedars. The Lord's breaking in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, Like, have you you ever been out to the West Coast and seen those huge sequoias? The coastal redwoods, uh, they're just splintered, so the poet says, by the power and the glory of God. So we start over the Mediterranean, we roll over the Lebanon range. No mention of the Becca Valley, which would be the equivalent to the San Joaquin Sacramento Valley. But notice in verse uh, 6, we move into the what we call the anti-Syrian range. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. Now that word Syrian is an interesting word. Um, it's, not, it's not the way... By the way, that, that hymn that we were singing, i got to do my homework a little bit because I forget my King James language. But did you know, it's a, it's a contemporary hymn that we were singing, but did you notice that it was using these and thous and cants to kind of make it sound like King James English? But I think there's an error because I think they were using thys where they should have been using thines. You know, uh, because if we don't really know the language of the king, we could easily just throw in a thy to make it sound like it's old King James, but we're not using it properly. I think the thy should be thines. Um, But at any rate, i got to do a little more research because I don't speak the language of the king anymore. (laughs) What's my point? Sometimes, you know, language changes and Syrian is not... This is not the way Israelites refer to this mountain. They call it Mount Hermon. The point is, Mount Hermon is in what we call the anti-Lebanon range. 
we come off the coast. We go over the coastal range, Lebanon. We go through the Becca or the San Joaquin Sacramento Valley. We go up into the Sierra, uh, uh, Nevada or um, the anti-Lebanon range. You see, we're just following the normal path of a storm. It's just tracking the way they would have understood any to track. I'm going to come back to that point in a moment. And so we see the path of the storm that is now over the anti-Lebanon range. And then where's the storm end? Verses 7 and 8. It ends over the desert. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. Well, which desert do you mean? The next part of the line is going to tell us the Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. Now, the desert of Kadesh is, in, is interesting. Here we are in Israel. Uh, commentators will try to locate the desert of Kadesh. And one place they put it is Kadesh Barnea, which is way, way, way down south. Or Kadesh on the Orontes, which is way, 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 way north. Neither of which make any sense. Because the, the storm has been going like east to west, Right? What storm goes east to west and then all of a sudden makes a 90 degree turn and goes like 200 miles south or 200 miles north? That makes no sense at all. We're in the desert and of course just by paying attention to the topography, we're in the high desert plateau east of Israel just like the high desert plateau east of the Sierras. Now the fact that we don't know any Kadesh out there is really no problem because Kadesh simply means holy spot. Now, how many, whole, how many places were named Holy Spot in ancient Israel? Well, we already know, too, Kadesh on the Orontes and Kadesh Barnea, and there were no doubt a bunch of other ones. I remember one time my daughter Annie and I were uh, driving up to Atlanta. We rented a car, and uh, the, it, it, we rented it from this little small car dealer, uh, and... Um, they only had one car. It was like, this was like maybe 10 years ago, but this I think was like a 1990 Buick that was about 500 feet long. You know, one of these real old, old, long, long boats. But it, it man, did that thing ride comfortably. You couldn't even tell you hit a pothole. It was just smooth. Uh, probably doubled my cost on gas mileage, but it was a lot of fun. But at any rate, while we, I plugged into the GPS, um, or no, into the weather, Atlanta. And you know, there were about 13 Atlantas that came up. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta here, Atlanta there, Atlanta everywhere. The other day, I, I like to watch golf, and one of my favorite golfers is Bubba Watson. Uh, anybody know where Bubba Watson is from? Strange town. It's in Florida near Pensacola. Baghdad. Baghdad, Florida. So I'm looking up to find Baghdad, Florida on a map. And guess what? There's not just one Baghdad in the United States. There are a bunch of them. The point is, in, the, in our culture, there are a bunch of different... So Annie and I ended up having a game. We tried to find cities that only had one. And it was tough to find a city that there's only one of. The point is, this storm just starts over the Mediterranean, goes over the first mountain range, down through the valley, up over the next mountain range, and it dissipates over the desert uh, east. It's just an ordinary storm, folks. 
And at the same time, it's most extraordinary because it's a manifestation of the glory and the power of God. See, the question is, what do you see? Do you see just a storm or do you see God? Do you see God's glory? Do you see God's power? Because if you just see a storm, there's no motivation to worship. But if you see the power and the glory of God, there is motivation to worship. And of course, why would the poet describe a storm? One other thing, and that is the time of the storm. Uh, Notice that it it refers in uh, verse 9 to the Lord twisting the oaks and stripping the forest bare. Now, if some of you are reading like the ESV, the voice of the Lord is not twisting the oaks. It's causing the deer to writhe in labor. Wow, that's a pretty different translation. (laughs) Twisting oak trees or causing deer to twist in labor. Well, that's because, okay, take the word put in English, P-U-T. Just add one little letter, another T, and now what do you got? Put. Just one little change, but two words that, it's kind of like that. This is a really odd word, and scholars just aren't sure what it means, but here's the encouraging thing, it ultimately doesn't matter. Why not? Because fallow deer in Israel give birth in the fall, and... The leaves lose their, the trees lose their last leaves in the fall. So whichever one is right, they're both telling us the same thing. This is a fall storm. Why does that matter? That matters because in ancient Israel, there is no irrigation for the farmer. We've got to imagine ourselves as ancient farmers, no irrigation. If there's no irrigation, we only have one place that we can get water for our crops from. Where is that? Rain. Now, we have, we're just like California. You know the song, It Never Rains in California? Well, you know, for five months of the year, that's true. From like mid-May to mid-October, don't expect it to rain. It's just not going to rain. So we have this long, dry season. And then in the fall, here come those first storms off of the Mediterranean. And when those first storms come off the Mediterranean, not only are we thirsty, our animals are thirsty, the ground is thirsty, and we've got to get going for the next year's, our livelihood depends on the coming of those rains. This is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles in ancient Israel. This is the big feast. This is the one that's at the end of the agricultural year. We just brought our last crops in. We need it to rain so desperately because we've got to start to plow and plant. How long has it been dry? Five months. How long has the sun been shining? Five months. Take a guess as to what your ground looks like. Give me one descriptor. It's dry. And another one that starts with H? It's hard. And if you're an average farmer, you don't even have an oxen. Your plow probably is made out of wood. What must you wait for before you're going to plow? You must wait for the rain to come. God put Israel in this unique piece of real estate to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. They were totally dependent on him. And so the the feast of 
tabernacles. It's kind of like January. It looks back and says, praise God for a good year. It looks forward and says, God, would you please send the rain so we can do it again and survive and thrive? Uh, and so it's at that time of the year when this storm is coming and, and ancient Israelites are breathing this deep sigh of relief because it's raining. Something that's just strange for most of us Floridians, we can't get it. I suppose if you grew up on a farm in the Midwest, you'd have a better sense of what this is like, the thrill of rain coming uh, to end a prolonged period of drought and to make life possible. That's what's being described here. And what's the result of the storm? Just two things in verse 9. Notice it says um, at the end of verse 9, and in his temple all cry glory. Now the temple here is not the temple on the earth, right? Remember how the psalm started. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The, 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 the sanctuary here, the temple here is God's heavenly temple. And the people who are saying glory are the angels. And what the psalmist is saying to the angels is, okay, he, here's what I want you to do. When you see God's power and glory in this thunderstorm, I want you to ascribe that glory and power to the Lord because in the past, every year, when the angels in the sanctuary have seen this, they have said, there's the glory. There's the glory of God. Where? In that storm. There's the power of God. Where? In that storm. The angels have always worshipped God when they have seen these displays of His power and His glory. And so you should do it this fall when you see it as well. And what is happening in heaven ought to happen on earth also. That when we see the power and the glory of God in creation, we ought to worship. Now, I'll wrap this up with, with one kind of odd point. We don't face the temptation that the ancient Israelites faced. Because you see, there was a rival deity to the God of Israel in the Old Testament. His name started with a B. Anybody know who he is? Baal. Baal was the big rival. Israel was always tempted to leave the Lord and to go to Baal. In, the, in Canaanite religion, take a wild guess as to what Baal's primary job was. To bring the rain. That's why you have the contest between the Lord and Baal with Elijah on Mount Carmel. Trust me, nobody in that story cared who could send fire from heaven. Everybody cared who could send rain because the story starts with, there will neither be dew nor rain until I say so. And the story ends when Elijah, through his servant, sees out over the Mediterranean a cloud the size of a man's fist. And he says, you better get Ahab off the mountain because there's a huge downpour coming. It starts with drought. It ends with rain. It's all about who's in control of the rain. Why? No irrigation. River deities played no role in ancient Canaanite worship because rivers played no role in their lives, but rain did. And so... I may have mentioned to you in the first sermon that I can't prove it, but if I had to pay my money and take my pick, Psalm 29 was originally written by a Canaanite to worship Baal. And David took that Canaanite hymn 
and he took out all the bales and he put the Lord's name throughout. Now, there are a number of reasons for this, and I didn't go into all the detail with regard to the topography, but the topography, just notice Lebanon, anti-Lebanon, we're not in Israel. We're north of Israel. Who was the main deity that was worshipped up there in Phoenicia? And that reference to Syrian, there's a text in Deuteronomy chapter 3 that says, we Israelites call it Mount Hermon, those Phoenicians call it Syrian. See? It's kind of like the thighs and the thines. When David took it over, he didn't get all of the Canaanite stuff out. He just got Baal out of there. Because what he wanted to say to the ancient Israelites is, when you see the power and the glory of God in a storm, do not ascribe that power and glory to Baal. Ascribe that power and glory to the true and living God, the God of Israel. Now see, here's the question. When's the last time you were tempted in an electrical storm to ascribe the power and glory of that storm to the Canaanite deity, Baal? You weren't. So you might think, oh, this psalm doesn't really apply to us. But it does in a very profound way. Here's how. Our temptation is not to ascribe the power and glory of a thunderstorm to Baal. Our temptation is simply to ascribe it to what we might call natural law. In other words, not to have it motivate us to worship at all. Because we can explain it scientifically. We can explain that the warm, moist air rises... And when it rises, it cools. And when it cools, the moisture condenses. And when it condenses, it forms clouds. And when those clouds get saturated, it precipitates out. And that there are imbalances in the electrical charges. And when those imbalances neutralize, you have this great uh, electrical discharge to neutralize the imbalance. And that neutralization heats the air up so much that it breaks the sound barrier and you hear that in the form of a thunderclap. That's all true. But it's not the whole truth. And what we have tended to do is we have tended to live with half the truth. As science has more and more described the world in which we live, we have given up a theological perspective because we have bought into its either or. It's either a scientific description or it's a theological description when the Bible says, how about trying a both and? We shouldn't see science as giving us an alternative explanation to our world as opposed to the Bible. We should see it giving us a a complementary perspective. So, for example, if I were to say to you, what is this? What would your answer be? Bulletin. You know, it's a trick question. I would say, no, it's not a bulletin, it's paper. So which one is it? Both. And so often we feel forced to either choose between the Bible's description of our world or science's description as if we have to choose that this is a bulletin, not paper, or paper and not a bulletin when they should be seen as complementary. So here's the, I, I doubt that you're tempted to worship Baal. I do wonder if you're motivated to worship. The Canaanites were wrong. They were motivated to worship Baal when they saw these powerful thunderstorms. But let's give them credit for one thing. 
they were motivated to worship. They hadn't drunk so deeply as we have from the well of naturalism or materialism. Not materialism in the sense that I'm a material girl, but materialism in the sense that the only thing that exists is the material world. It's just not true. There is a God who lives and moves and have, and we live and move and have our being in Him. And everything is a manifestation of His power and His glory. See, the challenge for us is not do we worship the Lord or do we worship Baal. The challenge for us is do we worship or not? May God, you know, faith comes by hearing, yes? Hearing by the word of God. May God take this word and create faith in us, the faith that gives us the ability to perceive uh, in the world that God has made, his power and his glory. And as we, as we experience it, to worship him. Now, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And you might think, How's the Lord's Supper tie in with this? It really, really does.